0: You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to be continuing on in the sermon series through Nehemiah uh, that we have been doing. Uh, And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for our time. Father, this chapter, specifically of Nehemiah, really is uh, one that is so crucial to understand. There's so much uh, of it that can just directly relate to how we ought to be living the the Christian life today. So I pray that you would just give us focus right now, but that you would open up our eyes and just give us the patience to see the truths that you have for us in this passage. Um, I just say that in uh, Jesus's name. Amen. Uh, So our passage today is going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. But I want to start off by just reading uh, a portion of Zechariah chapter 14. All right, Zechariah was a prophet uh, who served during the early days of the Israelite captivity, uh, right after Jerusalem had been destroyed, right after the Israelites had been taken away uh, to Babylon. Zechariah wrote... And predicted that one day Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. And he predicted that people will live in it and there will be no longer a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So even though Jerusalem had fallen in his day, Zechariah predicted that one day Jerusalem was going to rise back up from the ashes like a phoenix and it would dwell in security. Now read that prophecy because Zechariah's words would have been very familiar with the people living a generation or two later in Nehemiah's day as they sought to rebuild the rubble of Jerusalem you were with us last week, we saw them begin that work of rebuilding. We, we saw them start the work on those walls. And today we're going to see the, the first major opposition that comes their way as they rebuild. Nehemiah and his band of builders have Zechariah's words on their side. All right, they knew that God's word already told them that they would be successful. But oftentimes, when persecution comes your way, it can be very easy for that persecution to overshadow the promises of God. It's like knowing that the sun is in the sky, but you can't see it because it's being obscured by the clouds. And if those clouds stay there long enough, it can be Easy to to be deceived into wondering if that sun is is ever going to shine back through. Uh, Today's passage that we're going to study, it takes place at a very crucial point for Nehemiah and his men. Uh, If you look at verse 6 for just a moment, we're told that they built the wall uh, and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. All right, so we saw the start of the wall last week, and now we're at the halfway point. And today, we're going to see that the hardest part of anything in life is so often that halfway point. All right, halfway is often the hardest. Because when you begin a new project, you know, there's always that excitement that comes with starting something new. Uh, You're not yet tired or worn out from the work. And when you get closer to the end of that project, when the the end is near, that's when you start to get a renewed sense of energy because you can finally see that finish line off in the distance and you know all of that hard work is finally going to pay off. But when you're only halfway done with something you're neither here nor there. You're starting to run out of steam, uh, but there's still an awful lot of work left to do, and so often this is where the enemy chooses to attack, because he knows that often this is when you are at your weakest. And so as we study this text, we're going to focus on two things. First, on how the enemy attacks, and then We'll look at how you should respond, how the enemy attacks, and how you should respond. Uh, And if you want to take some some comfort, uh, know that I'm going to do things a little different than last week. Uh, I'm not going to read all of the text all at once for you. Um, Rather, we're going to read the text kind of progressively as we work our way through it. So first, let's take a look at how the enemy attacks. All right, there's two different waves of attacks from the enemy that you see in this passage. So we'll take a look at each. But even before that, it's really important just to make absolutely clear that the enemy will attack. He will attack, it's just a matter of how. Verse one tells us that right out of the gate. We're told, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, right? Sanballat heard the progress that was being made on the wall, and because of that, he became angry and he prepares to attack. And if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to, to write this down because here's really the main idea of this passage, It's that the more progress you are making, the the more persecution there often will be, right? More progress almost always means more persecution, which is not to say that just because you feel like you're being persecuted, uh, that that's because you're making spiritual progress, All right, if you're just out there acting like a jerk and people are getting upset with you because of that, all right, well, that's not persecution. Uh, That's just you being a jerk. Uh, So the presence of perceived persecution doesn't mean that you're necessarily making any progress or that you're growing in spiritual maturity, but when you are growing in the faith, when followers of Christ are advancing the work of his kingdom, wherever that does occur, you can guarantee that greater persecution will follow. I think about a church uh, for example, that has stopped reaching out to the community around them all right we 've got churches like that all around us. you know maybe they have a lot of ideas they, they talk about. Uh, reaching the community with the gospel a lot, Uh, but in reality, they're not actually doing anything. They're not actually inviting others to church. They're not sharing the gospel with others. Uh, They're not trying to disciple new believers. All right, for churches like that, Satan has no need to bring persecution against a congregation like that because that church is already right where he wants them. They are already spiritually incapacitated. They're already out of commission. So there's no point in Satan wasting his energy on them. The enemies of God are not all-knowing. They're not, to use a seminary word, they're not omnipresent beings. They can't be everywhere all at once like God can be. They have limited, finite resources. So churches and individuals, the kind that they're going to target, are the ones that actually pose a threat. Churches that are being obedient to the Great Commission. Churches that are winning the loss to Christ. So whenever you individually or whenever we as a church are doing those things, are doing what is right, then you can bet that we will be under enemy attack, which means that we need to know exactly how the enemy will attack. So let's see the first wave of Sanballat's assault, starting in verse 2. It says that Sanballat said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. So the first attack from the enemy is a verbal assault. And through attacks like it, the enemy will try and discourage you from moving forward. Sandballot and Tobiah are trying to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of everyone around them. They're trying to convince others that this project will never get off the ground. It will never work. And it will take, you know, all it'll take is, is something as small, as light as a fox to hop up on that wall. Everything will start to crumble Right, it's like they're saying, you know, you better not breathe too hard on this wall or it might just collapse. Those are the kinds of things that they are saying. And Satan loves to use cheap tactics like that because talk really is cheap. You know, it doesn't take much effort on the enemy's part to just put a little bit of doubt in the minds of a few individuals and see what happens. You know, you'd be surprised how much havoc just a single discouraging sentence can make. You text somebody or you post a complaint on Facebook, or you just make a couple of negative comments at a church meeting, and you'd be surprised how quickly plans can get derailed and how quickly people can start to question what they're doing and wondering if this is really the direction that God would have them to go. Uh, Notice that Sanballat and Tobiah, they actually weren't talking directly to Nehemiah or any of the Jewish builders. Verse 2 says that they're talking to their own brothers and to the army of Samaria. If you didn't know this, the Samaritans were the descendants of the Jews who uh, intermarried uh, with foreigners. So they were really only quasi kind of half Jewish. Uh, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians, when they came in and conquered Israel, you know, most of the Israelites were relocated elsewhere. And then other conquered people, other pagans uh, from other parts of the empire, they were exiled to go live in Israel in their place. Uh, but a few of the Jews uh, remained behind. Uh, they weren't exiled. And many of those Jews intermarried with those newly arriving pagan foreigners. And those are the ones that became known as the Samaritans. So the, the Samaritans now call this land home. And they're not exactly excited or happy about the Jews returning and coming back to reclaim this uh, city as their own. So Sanbalat. Rather than just having a direct conversation with Nehemiah to try to work out their disagreements, he instead finds others who already dislike Nehemiah and what he's trying to do. All right, so he's, he's trying to stir up those people that are already disgruntled uh, so he can uh, put a stop to the building of this wall. And as we think about that, surely, you know, thousands of years later, uh, we who are living in a society that is surely so much more advanced, so much more sophisticated than the ancient world, surely we don't have problems like that anymore. You know, surely we don't still have pot stirrers, in our churches today you know the kinds of people that instead of speaking directly to the pastor or directly to the deacons or whoever it is that they have a a disagreement with you know those kinds of people that find others who are already disgruntled as well and who together then form a kind of coalition of opposition against whatever the ministry that the congregation is trying to accomplish Surely that never happens in our own day and age. I hope you can hear the sound of sarcasm in my voice. Because the farther removed we become from the events of the Bible, the more we realize that not really much has changed throughout history. People now are really just the same as they were back then. Often, I know when we think of persecution, our minds immediately run to the kinds of persecution that comes from uh, hostile governments who, you know, pass laws uh, that make the Christian faith illegal, uh, who have Christians arrested for sharing their faith, Uh, but so often the enemy doesn't even need to resort to those kinds of tactics to undo the ministry of the church. So often he can use the church itself and those who are sitting right here within our pews to do that. So so we should never underestimate the devastating impact that words can have on the unity of our congregation. And we must always be quick to deal with those kinds of people that like to stir up trouble before they can cause too much damage to the work of the church. So that's the the first assault on Nehemiah and his men. It's this verbal attack meant to discourage God's people from moving forward and from completing these walls. Uh, But skip down to verse 7, and we'll see that the enemy doesn't just want to discourage you from moving forward. He also wants to destroy what you have already accomplished. It's not enough for the enemy that, that you just be discouraged or disheartened. All right, he wants to make sure that he takes everything that God is rebuilding in your life, and he wants to, to make sure that it is reduced back to rubble. Starting in verse 7, we read that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtonites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was moving forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing." There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So the enemy isn't just here to discourage. He is here to destroy or as the New Testament puts it, he's like a prowling lion who is ready to devour. All right. There, there were still so many breaches in the walls of Jerusalem that the enemy could attack God's people from multiple directions and they wouldn't even know what was happening until it was too late, until the enemy was already right there on top of them. And I want to focus for a moment specifically on verse 10. Let me read that again. We're told that the strength of those who bore the burdens was failing because there was too much rubble. So God's people say by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. I think that God's people, as they say those words, they, they were discouraged by those words. But, but as we read them, I actually think that we should be encouraged. Right, I can speak from personal experience about moments where I have echoed those words myself, where I have looked around at all of the, the messiness of my own life, and I have said, there is too much rubble here. All right, too much is broken. I'm not even sure where to start. There is no possible way I could piece all of this back together again. And let me tell you, that's a wonderful place to be, because that's when you will finally stop trying to pull yourself back up by your own bootstraps, and that's when you'll begin to look to the Lord's help instead. So, so let those attacks from the enemy be used to your advantage. Let the enemy's attempts to destroy actually lead you to depend more deeply on the Lord. Looking to him for help because you can't possibly do this on your own. So, so this story yeah, we, we've so far we've, we've seen how the enemy will attack, all right? He is going to seek to discourage you from moving forward, and he's going to seek to destroy even that which has already been accomplished. But now let's just spend some time just getting more practical. Let, let's see how we should respond to all of that. We know how the enemy will attack. We have his playbook right here. We can see the tactics that he uses. They have not changed since the days of Nehemiah. So, so let's see how you should respond. At The rest of Nehemiah chapter 4 we uh, will actually show you three different ways that you can respond and defend yourself from the enemy. If you look back up to verse 4, you'll see the first way. This is right after Sanballat and Tobiah. Uh, They spoke ill of the Jews in order to try to stir up that opposition against them. All right, this is the the people of God's response to that. Starting in verse 4, they begin to pray, saying, hear our God, O our God, for we are despised Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So the first way that they defend themselves while they are under enemy fire is to pray. Before Nehemiah and his men ever even pick up a sword, they understand that the most valuable weapon at their disposal is the ability to talk to God and to ask him to intervene. But, but so often today, so often, we find ourselves doing just the opposite. All right, There are too many situations where our prayers are really just the backup plan. Right, prayer is only what you do when you've exhausted all of your other options. And so you just say, well, all we can do now is pray. But, but prayer was never meant to be plan B or plan C. It was always meant to be plan A, which is not to say that prayer is the only thing you should ever do. It's not. But it is to say that it is the first thing you should do. The Lord is the single greatest asset that you have access to when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to doing battle with the enemy. So we would be fools not to start by asking for his aid. So so prayer is one way to respond to enemy fire and persecution. Uh, But in the first part of verse 6, we see a second way as well which is to persevere. Look at the first five words of that verse. Uh, In my translation, the English Standard Version, it says, so we built the wall. So we built the wall. Sanballat and Tobiah are literally trying to rally the Samaritan troops to fight. And what do Nehemiah and his band of builders do? They build the wall Anyway, All right, first they pray, but then they get to work and they persevere through that work, which, again, is too often the opposite of how we react today. Too often in churches today, we see opposition as a sign that maybe God has changed his mind. All right, maybe he's not telling us to complete that project that we know he commanded us to start but, but let me just suggest to you that if God has called you to start something and it's only halfway done and now there are some obstacles and uh, some, some struggles that, that have kind of come across your path and it, it seems blocked, maybe that's not actually a sign that God wants you to abandon what you're doing. Maybe it's a sign that he wants you to persevere and, uh, and see that project through to completion. All right, if every pastor or church member left their congregation when the, they had their first disagreement with others in the church, then every pew and every pulpit across this country would be empty, All right. Perseverance is the key to seeing ministries and churches that prosper. All right. If every marriage ended in divorce after a couple had their very first fight, there wouldn't be anybody left who was still married. All right. Perseverance is the key to seeing marriages that prosper. First, you must pray, but then you also must learn how to persevere. But there's also a last way to respond to the attacks of the enemy, and that's to be prepared to fight. Pray, persevere, but you also better be prepared uh, to fight. Let's start reading again in verse 13. It says, In the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the men by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So so Nehemiah here is preemptively preparing for the battle that he knows is about to come his way. So he is strategically stationing people in very key locations with swords and spears and bows, which is a lot easier, just as an aside, that's a lot easier to do before the enemy heads your way rather than waiting until you come under heavy fire because at that point it is probably too late then in verse 15 though it says and when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that god had frustrated their plan we all returned to the wall each to his work and from that day on half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears shields bows and coats of mail and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way, listen to this, they were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Now, if there is any part, of Nehemiah's story that I'd love for you to remember. It's those verses that I just read. There is no greater, more vivid depiction of the Christian life than what was just described there. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. This is where the, the imagery of the sword and the trowel comes into play uh, that I've talked about before. Uh, that's often used to depict Nehemiah's story uh, and that I even wanted to make sure we included uh, in the, uh, the sermon series logo, that trowel and the sword. All right, you have the, the trowel for spreading out the mortar in between all the different layers of stone as you seek to build the wall. But you also have that sword out to defend yourself as you go. Right, Nehemiah is turning his men into construction worker soldiers. And these are the same kinds of men and women that we need to be training up in our churches today. Because this is the life of a Christian. But when you first come to believe in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and when you first submit your life to Christ, the Lord begins that spiritual work of rebuilding your soul. He starts working on everything that that is in your heart that was once ruined by sin and all of those destructive decisions that you have made in life. But you also very quickly have to learn how to defend as the Lord is teaching you how to rebuild. Otherwise, you're not going to make it very far. Uh, My uh, five-year-old son loves to build. He is always building with Legos. He's always building with blocks. Uh, but as many of you know, I also have a two-year-old daughter who loves to knock down those blocks and those Legos. And that's not always a good combination. Jonah finds himself frustrated more than he would like to be because he spends 20 minutes building something up that takes about two seconds for Sophia to knock down. And then he's got to start the process all over again. So, so you must learn How to defend as you build. Because if you're married, for example, it will do your marriage no good if you are seeking to better improve your communication skills. But you're not fighting to protect your marriage from infidelity, It won't matter how good your communication skills are if one spouse is cheating on the other. That marriage will be destroyed. Or in your spiritual life, it will do you no good to fight to conquer one area of sin, only to have it be replaced by another. And if you're really excited because you have finally broken away uh, from the addiction of alcohol— but now you're addicted to cigarettes, that's not going to do your soul or your health any good. All right, Nehemiah chapter four teaches us that we must be prepared to fight because if we let the enemy catch us off guard, then he is going to decimate and he is going to destroy all that the Lord has been rebuilding and accomplishing in our lives. So let's finish up these last verses just looking more specifically at a couple of ways that we ought to be preparing for this fight. Look at verse 18. Uh, We're told that the man who sounded the trumpet was behind me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. So, here here's the first of two ways that we see Nehemiah and his men prepare for the battle in these final verses. And that's the first way is to always be ready to respond when others cry for help to always be ready to respond when others cry for help. This wall is a massive, massive building project, and we saw last week that they weren't just working on a single portion of the wall at a time that would have taken far too long. So instead, they are working on multiple sections simultaneously, but this means that their forces are spread dangerously thin, They are too far apart from one another, then they they can't even see each other. So they devise this clever alarm system with trumpets. Doesn't matter what you're doing, if you hear the sound of the trumpet, it means somebody, one, one of your fellow builders, is in grave danger. So you have to drop everything you're doing and run towards the sound of the trumpet. You have to draw your sword, you have to ready your spear and rally together for whoever was in need. And I know we don't use trumpets for that anymore, uh, and our congregation is so spread out that even if you tried to, to do that, you, you wouldn't be able to hear it. But, but that is a good use for our phones, which can come in just as handy when we need to rally our own troops from time to time. When somebody in this congregation is struggling and when they need your help, whether it's a physical struggle or a financial struggle or spiritual attacks from the enemy, we must always seek to do our part to rally others to come to their aid. So so if you are struggling, then, then let me encourage you, please don't struggle alone. Blow the trumpet, send a text, make a phone call, let others in the congregation know how we can pray for you, how we can love on you, how we can support you during your time of need. So always be ready to respond when others cry for help. But but there's one last way to prepare for the battle ahead as well. And we read about that in the very last verses of this chapter uh, where we're told that we must always be on guard both day and night. Always be ready to respond when others cry for help, but always also be on guard both day and night. Starting in verse 21, we read, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by day and may labor uh, or guard for us by night and may labor by day. So, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So so Nehemiah divided his men in half. And and even though all of them carried weapons, we see that half of them focused on the building, while the other half focused on keeping an eye out for the enemy. And and these men who were on guard duty, they, they were on guard duty from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And then, as if that wasn't enough, all the men then had to sleep in Jerusalem where they had been at work. It's not like working a long, hard day at a construction site, but then you get to go home, then you get to take a shower, uh, then you get to slip into a comfy bed. Uh, That's not what was going on here if they had left their places on the walls, if they had left the city to go back home, the enemy could have slipped in under the cover of darkness to destroy all the progress that they had made. So these men had to commit themselves to eat and to sleep and to live on the job site until all of the construction was complete. And and that should be a stark reminder to us today that the enemy will not take a break. And if the enemy doesn't stop, then neither can we. Like a lion, he is always prowling. And so day and night, we must always keep our armor on. We must always seek to keep our guard up. The enemy will seek out the the breaches in your wall, the spots where you are most vulnerable. He'll attack when you are tired, when you are isolated. That's, That's when he will begin his assault. So often he'll wait until that halfway point that we talked about in the beginning. He'll let you get started. He'll let all of that new excitement wear off. And then he'll wait until you start to get exhausted. And that's when he will seek to both discourage you and to destroy. So as a church and in our own lives, as we seek spiritual maturity, as we seek to make spiritual progress, let's remember that more progress almost always means more persecution. But, but let us also pray that the Lord would give us strength to persevere through that persecution as well. Let me pray. Father, may, may we just take the truths of this passage to heart. Uh, may you just equip our lives with both trowels and swords, Father, May we continue to seek the advancement of your kingdom all while seeking to defend what you have already accomplished for your kingdom in our lives as well. I just ask all of this in Jesus' holy, precious name, amen.